Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Clark Williams Derry of the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Anal- Analysis about the British Columbia LNG project cost rising again report that he had recently published. Well, today I'm going to be talking to Andy Hira, who is Professor of Political Science at Simon Fraser University, head of the Clean Energy Research Group, and lead author of BC's LNG Play, Reasonable Transition Fuel or Environmental Disaster. So welcome to the interview, Andy. Thank you for having me. This is a fascinating topic today because over the last well, certainly since Russia invaded Ukraine and precipitated a, uh, an energy crisis in Europe, which then has pretty much spread everywhere, uh, the Canadian industry has been cranking up pressure on the federal government to increase uh, or to expand Canadian LNG production, or at least get more projects off, off the ground and increase national natural gas exports. And... It's not happening. And I think uh, Clark Williams Derry's report was was uh, important because the bottom line there is that the cost to produce uh, LNG for LNG Canada are twice those of the U.S. Gulf Coast. And if costs are that high, that would be a very good reason why we're not seeing final investment decisions on many of the projects that have been proposed for BC. But your report goes even further than that. And I'm very excited to talk to you about it. So let's start off with, give us a little background and context on what's been going on in BC since the LNG in BC strategy was adopted in 2011. Well, initially there was an expectation uh, and uh, listeners will remember that it was put almost as a gold rush that was going to happen for the province bringing in millions of dollars of revenue and thousands of jobs in terms of long-term employment. And none of that, as you pointed out, has materialized. At one point, there were over 20 projects uh, proposed. And right now, we're looking at really three projects that are underway. Uh, One huge project uh, by a shell consortium was canceled uh, uh, in the last year uh, to a a loss of over a billion dollars, it's estimated. Uh, So the question is, why were the province's expectations so out of line with the reality? In fact, after the province, uh, you know, suggested that this bonanza was on the on the horizon, uh, there was such a lack of interest that they began to provide huge subsidies in a variety of forms to attract companies into the LNG space. Now, the most recent government, the Oregon government, has dialed some of those back. Uh, but they're still locked into the one viable, uh, you know, significant project, which is LNG Canada. The other two projects, the wood fiber project 
and the project out of Delta uh, are so small that uh, they're not going to make a significant dent in terms of exports. Right. The One of the subsidies that uh, the NDP government uh, was led by John Horgan and recently uh, he uh, was replaced by David Eby, so he, who is now the premier, uh, but hasn't changed direction on LNG policy at all. But there have been all kinds of promises that this was going to be like the liquefaction plants themselves were going to be electrified. And BC Hydro, which is, you know, uh, 97%, you know, clean electricity, was going to provide advantageous rates and so that they would basically this would be the, the cleanest LNG in the world. And now we we hear stories uh, in the BC media that uh, BC Hydro can't build a transmission uh, line up to Kitimat in time. And so maybe, you know, the liquef the uh, uh, compressors are going to have to run on natural gas instead of uh, electricity. And I, I don't know how many people I've heard say that that is just going to blow BC's emissions targets right out of the water. Yeah, there are many uh, problematic aspects of the electrification plant. Uh, one is the one that you pointed out in terms of uh, developing the infrastructure, including transmission infrastructure, uh, to reach the LNG facilities. Uh, that would include not only uh, where the natural gas is being fracked and then pumped into the pipelines, but also at the other end where the liquefaction will take place. Uh, another problem is, as we pointed out in our first working paper, the, the first CERG working paper, is that Site C is going to be wholly inadequate for the province's future electrification needs, uh, particularly when we start thinking about uh, transforming our whole transportation fleet to electric vehicles. Um, and so then the third problem, uh, which you've covered elsewhere, is that even if electrification takes place, uh, then there will be there is uh, a lot of concern about fugitive emissions uh, in terms of. Uh, both the liquefaction process and in terms of uh, getting the natural gas into the pipelines. Uh, there are a number of studies that we cite in our paper that suggest there is in wholly inadequate monitoring by the province in terms of these emissions. And that's not a, pro a problem unique to BC. It's occurring around the world where the emissions are estimated to be from natural gas are estimated to be much, much greater uh, than initially projected. And therefore, that really throws a wrench into the whole idea that natural gas can be a clean, uh, quote unquote, transition fuel. Uh, simply put, if the electricity needs are so great, by promising cut rate electricity to LNG, you're simply raising the rates of electricity for other taxpayers. Right. Well, let's talk about competitiveness. And uh, last fall, uh, German Chancellor Olaf uh, Scholz uh, came to Canada and was talking about, uh, you know, getting green green hydrogen from Canada. And then there was some suggestion that Germany might also be interested in LNG. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that he, he didn't exactly embrace that idea. And he said, well, we'll look at the business case. Now, what's really interesting about that is that, you know, because I follow so many uh, energy analysts and that the idea that there wasn't a business case for L Canadian LNG was, is absolutely ridiculed and mocked within the Canadian industry. And yet when 
uh, external analysts like yourself, Andy, when they look at it, they simply don't see the business case. Uh, you know, you point out that you know British Columbia is is uh, uh, quite a ways away from Asian markets. It's quite a ways away from European markets. So other suppliers have competitive advantages in terms of transportation. Everybody produces cheap gas these days, you know. So the price of gas is, as an input is is not a competitive advantage. BC has all kinds of. I mean, it's it's LNG industry infrastructure is is not built out. It's way up on the northwest, you know, the northern coast of British Columbia, unlike the like the U.S. Gulf Coast, which is all around Houston and Louisiana, you know. So they've got a big cluster there. I mean, they're they're. I think that I think the prime minister, on, unless somebody comes up with some numbers that you and I aren't don't have access to, I think that the, the prime minister was right. There, the business case for Canadian LNG is weak. I uh, I, I completely agree, and we go into uh, great depth in the in the paper about this. The first thing to to recognize is, and it's it's very ironic, is that the reason why the Clark government originally. Uh, offered all of these subsidies for the LNG industry was that there wasn't a market-based case for LNG. So they offered subsidies with the hope that with the sunk costs or uh, de-risking or reducing the investment cost, that LNG would uh, somehow come around and uh, eventually the royalties would make up for those initial subsidies. However, as you know, uh, natural gas prices crashed in North America because of fracking activities in North Dakota and Saskatchewan uh, and LNG facilities were built out because of that crash in the U.S. Gulf Coast, uh, you know, going back to at least 10 years ago and, and continuing up to the present day. Um, so both Australia and the U.S. have a head start on LNG infrastructure facilities. Qatar is uh, one of the leading natural gas exporters, much closer to both India and the EU and is doubling its infrastructure. So BC is so far behind in the game of building out its infrastructure. Now we add to that problem, the problem of distance. And as we, as we know, natural gas is about half as uh, costly to transport by pipeline as opposed to liquefaction. So when you do uh, a kind of a competitive map of potential sources and uh, proximity to the large markets of the EU and Asia, what we see is that both regions have much closer pipeline sources, whether we're talking about Malaysia or Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan uh, in the case of China, or whether we're talking about uh, Azerbaijan uh, in, uh, and, and Qatar in terms of the EU, now, those pipelines would have to go through Turkey. Turkey would extract some kind of price for that. But even if we're talking about LNG, there are abundant resources much closer to the EU, including, as you pointed out, the U.S. Gulf Coast. So when you do that kind of competitive analysis and you add to that higher labor costs in B.C., the opposition of First Nations groups, some First Nations groups like the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en, and then you add in the additional costs of environmental monitoring uh, that don't exist in these other markets. It's really hard to see how a business case can be made for BC LNG. I want to add another layer onto this because when I was preparing for the interview with uh, uh, Clark Williams Dairy, 
I reviewed what the International Energy Agency's World Energy Outlook 2022 had to say and what the BP Statistical Review had to say about the uh, scenarios, their scenarios for uh, LNG out to 2050. And I was quite shocked to find that they were not very optimistic. Uh, there are three, of course. Uh, there's the like in the for the IEA. There's the steps, which is the most conservative, and it uh, that's basically the status quo. And it only showed a small increase between over the next thirty years in LNG demand. The a, uh, announced policy scenario showed a very significant decline starting in about twenty thirty, and of course the net zero was even more of a much more of a decline than the announced policies and the BP data showed or scenario showed essentially the same thing so if we're talking so we've we've talked about competitive competitive bc lng uh in its competitiveness against other suppliers we've talked about its high cost and its underdeveloped infrastructure and then you know, if i was if i was an lng company looking at the future and i and i believe the iea and bp i would go why would I, why would i possibly invest in a high cost uncompetitive BC LNG plant when I'm not expecting, which by the way, now we, they would be at best a marginal producer. The BC LNG would be at best a marginal producer and you don't invest in marginal production unless you're expecting a big increase in demand and prices remaining high. And that is exactly right. the opposite scenario that the IEA and the BP are sketching. Correct. We have a temporary spike in prices related to uh, Russian oil being cut off by the EU. Uh, but it, as we've already pointed out, North Africa, including Algeria, already has a pipeline to Italy. Uh, and at that pipeline from Azerbaijan is build, being built out through Turkey. There is now a new agreement between Israel and Lebanon uh, about offshore natural gas there. Qatar is doubling its uh, capacity. Uh, Australia has already built out its infrastructure, even though it is at a distance disadvantage uh, to the same extent as BC. Uh, so even though demand in the short term has created an immediate spike in prices, supply will more than compensate for that, uh, given a little bit of lag time to respond to it. Now, there are two other layers of problems that we haven't uh, discussed yet in terms of disadvantages to BC. One is the cost of pipelines uh, as you know, as we point out in the paper, the coastal gas link pipeline that is going to LNG uh, Canada uh, is already $1.2 billion over its initial cost estimates. Um, so it really puts that whole project into questionable viability. Uh, even the wood fiber project, which is using existing pipelines that were made by Fortis, the north-south pipelines, is facing huge cost increases for that little bit of extension that's going from the Coquitlam Depot uh, out to Squamish. Um, so the geography of BC to get from the northeastern fields out to the coast is really prohibitively expensive. Now, the second factor that we haven't discussed yet is that there is a new technology that's come on maybe in the last five or six years, which is floating LNG platforms. And that there, uh, those allow one to de-risk the challenges of building infrastructure at a port. So that is going to potentially unleash 
a huge new wave of suppliers uh, in Eastern Africa, like Mozambique. Uh, these are countries that have abundant natural gas, but it hasn't been developed uh, because of the risk of investment stability there. If you can do all of your infrastructure and liquefaction uh, offshore, then you de-risk uh, the, the uh, need to develop physical infrastructure. So here again, BC is going to be at a huge disadvantage and is about 10 years behind uh, more recent develops in the market. In the market. Yeah, I, you know, there are uh, quite a number of projects that have been given federal approval. And the industry and its supporters like to point to the federal government and and lay the blame for the lack of LNG, you know, project uh, approval or project FIDs on the at the foot of the federal government. But the the fact is, they you know th these projects have received export licenses, uh, they've received environmental uh, assessment uh, approvals. Uh, <laughs> the federal government is not the problem here. The, the problem the problem is the business case as we've we've described so we we've I think we provided for our listeners some detail on that that wasn't in the uh in my previous interview about BCLNG so let's go on to the other issue of issue of methane leak leakage monitoring what can you tell us about that there is it's really surprising because you would think that would be something that scientists uh, could agree upon but there is a huge range of uh, uncertainty in terms of uh, the amount of methane leakage that is happening, uh, both in BC and elsewhere. Uh, now they generally use infrared red methods to, to try to detect methane because uh, it is not visible and it is uh, hard to otherwise detect. And, and there are a number of studies that have occurred in Northern Eastern BC that we cite in the report that suggest that the level of leakage is far greater uh, than has been uh, detected or reported upon by the provincial government. So if we bring those two factors together, the business case and the methane leakage problem, uh, we could arrive at a very sound conclusion. You know, our group is not necessarily against fossil fuel exports in the short term, but we have a ready solution for this, which is use the existing pipelines that we're already exporting uh, natural gas through into the U.S., if natural gas uh, prices continue to spike or plateau, uh, that will be uh, felt throughout the pipeline price and will get higher export prices without taking any environmental risk or in infrastructure or financial risk on of trying to build out LNG. That's a really, I, I, you know what, I haven't done an interview about this yet, but I, I really uh, want to, because this has occurred to me. Uh, years, it's, you know, four, three, four, five years ago, uh, when uh, the U.S. shale producers were beginning to, you know, they've, they've been pressuring Eastern Canadian markets for Western Canadian gas for a long time now. And so the Western Canadian producers were looking around for other markets. And one of the things they discovered is because of the shift to natural gas power uh, generation in the U.S., that you know they could they could negotiate contracts directly with some of their customers in the southern or southwestern southeastern U.S. and they and they could do it using the existing infrastructure as you suggest. And so the question then becomes, uh, if the uh, U.S. LNG production is going to suck more of the existing uh, uh, U.S. natural gas production. 
uh, out of the market, then there's an opportunity to backfill for Canadians. And there, there's absolutely no risk attached to that. You can adjust your uh, your production uh, accordingly uh, at the at the wellhead. You can drill more wells, you know, do whatever you want, but you don't have to build more infrastructure that might become stranded assets. And I think this is the thing that we're we're, we're tr the proponents of more Canadian LNG want to build fifty year infrastructure to take advantage of a five year price spike. And this is absolutely I, yeah. yeah. So your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. We 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 cite a report uh, by Gunton et al. in our working paper that has done the calculations of how much uh, would it cost. Understanding that you're going to be paying a bit of a premium to the U.S. pipelines and to the U.S. LNG liquefaction operators, um, and comparing that with what will be the cost and how long will it take us to pay off those infrastructure costs of LNG. And they suggest that it's a no-brainer that if you consider the risk and the payoff time that uh, simply exporting through existing pipelines uh, makes a lot more uh, both financial and environmental sense. I would agree. And uh, there's another uh, point that I want to make here is that the LNG proponents are always on about how the best contribution that Canada could make to uh, lowering emissions globally would be to export uh, clean LNG to places like China, where it would displace coal for power generation. The problem with that is that there is no guarantee that when you sell a cargo of LNG from, from the west coast of Canada, and how it will be used when it gets to the customer. The customer might might not displace coal at all. They might use it for some other purpose that, you know, and then that I've even had one expert suggest that there's a real possibility that it could displace uh, uh, renewable electricity. And so the it's a spurious claim. There's no evidence to back up the claim that if you increase BC LNG uh, exports, that it will automatically displace coal someplace else. Yeah, that's a really important point. And, and a related one is that uh, while natural gas has uh, produces less CO2 than coal, methane is uh, a huge, huge problem. Uh, though it uh, doesn't create emissions or greenhouse gases uh, for as long as CO2 does, the intensity of the increase in temperature uh, is greater for methane. And so the life cycle of methane uh, might be 20 or 30 years as opposed to 100 years for CO2, but the intensity of greenhouse gas effects is much larger. And so here again, there is a great deal of uncertainty about both whether natural gas will actually displace coal uh, and uh, the uh, net effects of increasing that amount of methane emissions especially given the fact that we don't really have a good handle on what the level of emissions uh, around natural gas are. And the bottom line then is there is one thing that is certain, which is that uh, the natural gas, the, the LNG uh, industry will bust all of Canada's and BC's emission targets. Right. Now, in fairness to the industry, uh, the both the provincial government and the federal government uh, for and for listeners who hadn't listened to the previous uh, 
interview. The uh, BC produces about 5 billion cubic feet of natural gas per day. Alberta produces 10 billion cubic feet per day. And Saskatchewan's about 400 uh, million cubic feet per day. Those are the three producing provinces in, in Canada. Um, and so methane, fugitive methane emissions have been a, an environmental issue or a, and a you know climate issue for a long time. And both the federal government and the BC and Alberta governments have agreed that they will re reduce emissions by 75%. And there's already been some progress made in all of the, pro the producing provinces towards that. The problem is, as, as Andy, as you point out, is that we still don't, we've only just in the last couple of years come up with some better measurement technology, you know, remote sensors and sets, uh, methane sniffing satellites and, and drones and all of this. It's only just being deployed. It hasn't been fully deployed, this new technology. And, and it hasn't affected the, our, our uh, uh, data yet. Our, our data is just admitted. Everybody admits that our data really is awful. You know, it's, it's probably at least, uh, our emissions are at least probably twice what we actually report they are, methane emissions. So the the new technologies haven't yet had a chance to uh, improve or, or, you know, the quality of, of our methane emission data at this point. So we're really flying blind here as to what those are. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to point that out, you know, in fairness, we are taking some steps to clean that up, though it's, it'll be unclear as to when exactly we'll get it all uh, to an acceptable level. So I want to talk about the third part of your paper now, Andy, which is the, the cost-benefit trade-off between expected revenues and provincial support for LNG. What can you tell us about that? Well, just to your previous point briefly, we do have a figure based on official statistics around greenhouse gases by province. And while they have declined in the majority of provinces, in Alberta, they've increased, and in BC, they've plateaued. Now, we contrast that with the plans, which are for drastic reductions, and it means that even absent a ramp-up of LNG, we are nowhere uh, close to being on target in BC for meeting our our goals for uh, moving towards clean energy, which is extremely ironic because you pointed out at, out at the outset that we are basically a clean uh, energy producing province. And so we have an incredible opportunity here to change from subsidizing a uh, increasingly antiquated source of energy and using our prowess as a clean energy producer to enter into renewable energy solving the intermittency problem through pump hyd pumped hydro, through entering into battery technology, which will be the technologies of the future, and eventually into hydrogen where we've already made a start. So you put all those things together and you do your cost-benefit analysis, and there really is no uh, justification for the province or the federal government to offer any kinds of subsidies for fossil fuels. Um, now, I'm sure your listeners are aware that the IISD uh, in Manitoba keeps track of subsidies and they are still significant in Canada for the fossil fuel industry. And the question is, what else could we do with those subsidies? Uh, we could be investing in the industries of the future that will create employment rather than one that's going to be phased out one way or the other in the next 10 to 15 years. Yeah, this is a point I make all the time is natural gas, oil and coal and LNG are essentially 20th century fuels. I mean, we know that we know the trajectory now of the energy transition. 
somewhere down the road, it won't be 2050, but it might be 2060, 2070, uh, the ener global energy system will be powered by clean electricity and low, and low carbon sustainable fuels. That could be hydrogen, that could be you know, low-carbon aviation fuel. There's all sorts of things it could be. But it at some point, we're going to be off. Uh, so why in the world would Canada spend tens of billions, hundreds of billions on 20th century energy sources when that's capital that could be deployed on developing a 21st century energy system when it already, in some cases, has competitive advantage and some even first-mover advantage? And and the uh, the opportunity cost of capital rarely gets mentioned in these sorts of discussions. But you know, Canada already has trouble accessing adequate amounts of capital. It has to it has to get for a lot of foreign capital because it can't generate enough of its own private capital. Public capital in Canada is also scarce, right? So if we're taking public capital and spending in it to subsidize 20th century energy. We're basically hobbling ourselves as we try to transition over to, you know, this, the, the you know, to uh, to the, the cleaner energy sources. It it is, and nobody connects these dots in the public narrative and politicians. Nobody connects these dots, and and uh, if we don't do that, I really worry that we're going to hold ourselves back and we're going to miss many of the opportunities that are being presented by the energy transition. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a story that's repeated itself throughout Canadian history, this reliance on commodities. Uh, now, we can't underestimate the importance of uh, the, you know, the fossil fuel lobby. It's, it's clear that uh, Trudeau's purchase of the TMX pipeline is related to the powerful political presence of uh, vested interests. And so the, the conundrum for policymakers is the green uh, jobs are going to be more plentiful. They are the industries of the future, but at present they don't have a lot of political power. Um, in previous research I've done on the history of innovation, uh, focusing on the wireless industry, for example, we posit that there are certain windows of opportunity uh, that present themselves when you're in the uh, beginning of a technological revolution. And so those first mover advantages become extremely important. Uh, you know, when we're uh, talking about first mover advantages, we can think immediately about Tesla and Tesla's advantage of, uh, uh, of entering the electric vehicle market uh, while the big three were held behind and therefore it's given it a huge advantage. Um, we see that throughout industries. You know, IBM used to make computers, uh, but uh, Apple was the one that innovated and created the mass market for him. So we have an opportunity now to create these industries of the future. We have the intellectual and human capital in Canada. We don't have ready access to finance. That's where a government could play a role. And we have a, a competitive edge in terms of clean energy sources, as well as uh, personnel that are kind of at the cutting edge of hydrogen research. And you put all those things together, and there's a real possibility for BC and Canada in general to be a leader in this area. I want to close our conversation, Andy, with an observation that uh, doesn't get enough play in Canada, and that is the power of incumbents to slow down change and to direct change in the directions they want it to go rather than the directions it should go. 
And the obvious one here, you know, we're talking about we're talking about gas, natural gas. And so the oil and gas industry is a powerful, powerful incumbent. It's, you know, it lobbies at both the federal level and at the provincial level. And it spends an enormous amount of time and effort and resources managing the Canadian energy conversation and the energy narrative. But it's not the only one. Uh, utilities, most of the utilities in Canada are owned by crown, they're owned by governments, provincial governments, crown corporations. They're powerful, powerful incumbents. And Canada, while it has some advantages we've just talked about, it's, I worry a great deal that ultimately the power of the incumbents will slow the process and that we will be basically hobbled and fall behind and not take advantage of those, you know, the first mover advantages that we have. So just your thoughts on the the role of incumbents in this process. I think it's the most underestimated factor. I always point out to my students, the IPC has been preparing reports for decades now about uh, the, and, and if you add to that, the Stern report uh, commissioned by the UK government about the incredible cost that we as a society in every economic sector will face because of climate change. But those costs are dispersed throughout the economy and by geography, of course, they'll fall on uh, poorer countries more than, than the West. And in the same way, the green jobs that are emerging are far more plentiful than fossil fuel jobs, but they're very dispersed across different sectors and across geography. When we think about fossil fuel jobs in Canada, we immediately think about Alberta because that's where they're concentrated. So until the Canadian government can offer an alternative to Alberta companies and to fossil fuel workers, of course, they're going to stick their heels in because their livelihoods depend upon it. Um, when we talk about just transition, it's not simply uh, trying to get poor communities that are affected by fossil fuels off of them, but it's finding a solution for these incumbent interests. Just think about the fact that we have uh, three hydro-rich uh, provinces, Manitoba, BC, and Quebec, and yet we have no proper east-west transmission infrastructure. You know, why is Ontario or Alberta still burning fossil fuels when we could easily uh, have a, a completely clean energy economy based on existing resources in Canada? I agree wholeheartedly, and regular listeners will know that I flog those hobby horses on a regular basis. So, Andy, thank you very much for this. Uh, I really enjoyed your insights into the, the lack of the business case for BCLNG. It's my pleasure.